All right, without further ado, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available to your right. And the reason why we want you to have a Bible is because we are looking at the like we are looking at the life of Jesus from the biography um, of a scribe named Mark. And so we want you to have a copy of the biography in your hand because I'm going to be referring to it a lot. Um, it's an amazing episode in the life of Jesus. And um, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, go and grab one. And we're in Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read and I want you guys to follow along as I read. All right, here we go. Now, when they, that is Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field and those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to Bethany with the 12 verse 12 on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. OMG. Verse 15. <laughs> And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Pigeons being sold in the temple. Interesting. Verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. OMG. Verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. God, May you help us see who Jesus is and may you help us understand how passionate you are when it comes to delighting in who you are and being satisfied in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. The kind of entrance someone makes is often an indication of who they are. You know, um, you know who the bride is, right, at a wedding, right? Because what happens typically is all the bridesmaids come out and all the groomsmen come out and all the little cute kids follow and throw stuff and one of them's holding the ring and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I hope this kid walks straight down the aisle and they don't deviate from the plan and they make it to, the, uh, you know, you know what it is. After all of that happens, the bride enters, right? And the bride is wearing white and the bride comes after. The kind of entrance someone makes is often an indication of who they are. In a similar way, in this episode from the life of Jesus, how he enters Jerusalem during the Passover, is a vivid revelation of his true identity. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they decided to stop by near, nearby towns of Bethphage and Bethany. Not long after arriving, Jesus calls two of his disciples and gives them the following instructions. Look at verse 2. He says to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. I'm sure if you were one of his disciples, you would have been like, what? Jesus, you're asking us to go to the nearby village, find a colt, right? A donkey, uh, you know, a young horse, and just take it. Isn't that stealing, Jesus? Isn't that illegal? What are you asking us to do? And so Jesus anticipates, because he's so wise, their questions and concerns, and says to them in verse 3, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. 
What happens next? The disciples obey Jesus' instructions. They go into the village. And guess what? Everything Jesus told them will happen, happened. They found a donkey exactly where Jesus said the donkey will be, right? They faced the challenges he predicted they would. And they witnessed the outcome he told them to expect. Verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And as Jesus began to ride on the back of this donkey, verse 8 says to us that many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Right? It's like a red carpet kind of thing going on here. Right? But with people's outer garments and leafy branches. Kind of cool. Right? All right, according to Jewish thought, only kings and prophets and distinguished people rode on the back of horses and donkeys, okay? And the Jews back then believed the coming Messiah, the king, okay, would one day enter Jerusalem on a donkey during the Passover festival. And so the fascinating thing about this episode in the life of Jesus is that it's the Passover and he is about to enter Jerusalem, the holy city, on the back of a donkey. And so before their eyes, the crowd and the disciples and the hundreds of thousands of people that have gathered for the, um, for the festival, before their eyes, they are about to witness the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. That is why as Jesus passed by, they shouted, verse 9 and 10, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, in praising Jesus this way, in hailing these praises and bestowing these words upon Jesus. They were affirming that he was the long-awaited Messiah. From the very beginning of this biography of the life of Jesus, we've been studying as a church, the author whose name is Mark has had one overarching purpose. And that has been to make clear to all of us and whoever else reads it, to make it clear of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And until this point, until this very point, when Jesus on a donkey about to enter Jerusalem, the only way Jesus has revealed his true identity as the Messiah was through veiled actions. Okay, we've seen his power and authority to teach. We've seen him heal the sick and expel demons from people. Um, we've seen him raise the dead and we've seen him forgive sin. Jesus has been active in God's world 
with God's authority and now he chooses to reveal his true identity as king with a symbol more vivid and clear than ever before. He intentionally makes a public entry into Jerusalem. He fulfills an ancient prophecy by riding into the holy city on a donkey surrounded by a crowd hailing him as king. And all of this, as I've said, was done at a time when hundreds Thousands of Jews had gathered in Jerusalem from every land for the Passover. For the first time, Jesus is making a public declaration of his true identity. He is the one spoken of by the prophets of old. He is the long-awaited Messiah, God's only chosen king. And if this is who Jesus is, if this is who Jesus truly is, the million-dollar question for you and I and every single human being on the face of this planet is, how have we been relating to him? And how should we be relating to Jesus if he is truly God's son, the Messiah? Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Okay? Jesus was hungry, and as citizens of our modern world living in San Diego, um, when hunger strikes for us, what do we do? We go to our local grocery store, restaurant, or um, cafe, or wherever we go. We just go. There's an abundance of outlets for food for us. And the abundance of outlets for food of us can be frustrating sometimes, right? On Friday, my family and I were at Fashion Valley, and we went and watched Lion King. Ooh, it's a good movie, yeah, Lion King. And I went and watched Lion King, and we were hungry with the kids, and we were at the food court in Fashion Valley. Most of you know where that is. And we were like, we're hungry. We need to get some food to eat. And then my wife and I was like, okay, where do we go? There were so many choices. And we were going back and forth. Should we go to Panda Express? Should we go to this? Should we go to the, you know, and we were just like, and it's so frustrating. My wife and I can never forget the first time we arrived in America and went into a Walmart and discovered that all we wanted was peanut butter, okay? All we wanted was peanut butter, right? And we found the aisle, finally found the aisle after walking many miles because Walmart's that big, okay? We did, we did, and we got to the aisle and there was like peanut butter. There's a million versions of peanut butter, yeah? We are spoilt for choice. In our day and age, when it comes to food, we really are, but citizens of the ancient world were not as privileged and as spoilt for choice as we are. They didn't have as many options for food like us, and so to eat, most of them had to wait till they got home. Most of them had to like be lucky that they were near a village that sold food, or some of them, when they were traveling, they relied on a packed lunch or... For some, when they were traveling, they looked for food on fruit trees, okay? Trees that had been planted and trees that had been growing. And so that's what Jesus does here. He's traveling back to Jerusalem on foot. He's hungry, so he seeks food from the nearest food outlet. And for him, it's a fig tree. 
not the fig tree cafe in San Diego. <laughs> Get it? Whatever. If you haven't been, go. And for him, it's a fig tree. Verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And so how does Jesus react to this fruitless fig tree? Look at verse 14, OMG. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Just like that. At first glance, the cursing of the fig tree seems quite bizarre, right? Seems quite unfair. It seems to display Jesus' misuse of supernatural power. Why curse a fig tree when the, fig se- when the season for fig has not yet arrived, okay? I was thinking about this and I said, if Jesus lived in our world, world it would be like him cursing a Chick-fil-A restaurant for not being opened because it's a Sunday, I was just thinking, I was just trying to relate it. Like, it just kind of sounds like that, right? Have you ever been to Chick-fil-A, tried to go to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday? And you're like, oh, it's not open. But you're not like, I hate Chick-fil-A because you're not open on a Sunday. You don't do that. You're like, oh, it's my bad. Of course, it's not open on a Sunday. And then you move on. (laughs) Many people... are absolutely confused by Jesus' actions. Some reject this story altogether because as R. Kent Hughes says, it seems like Jesus is acting like a spoiled child who did not get his way. And so the question is, is Jesus abusing his power? Is he being irresponsible? Is he acting like a spoiled child who did not get his way? And what will help us know that all of these accusations are not true is for us to get or gain some education on fig trees back in the ancient world. In the ancient Near East, most figs produced fruit at a certain time of this year. Okay? And this is true for our day and age. Okay? But there was a certain kind that produced fruit outside of the usual season. And how people knew whether there was fruit on these particular fig trees was not the time of year, but by how many leaves were present. An abundance of leaves was an indication that there was fruit. Jesus, like most Jewish citizens, was familiar with this kind of fig tree. And so when he saw that the tree was in full bloom from a distance, he expected there to be figs for food. But when he got closer, he realized this wasn't the case. The fig tree had no fruit when it should have. The tree appeared to have fruit because of an abundance of leaves, but a closer look revealed that it was barren. It was fruitless. And so Jesus was not acting out of ignorance, and he cursed the tree not out of anger or frustration, but as a symbolic act to teach a deep spiritual lesson. 
right? Some people read this, and I read this, and I was like, oh, poor fig tree. Oh, my gosh. Like, oh, but that's kind of not the point. Jesus wants to communicate to his disciples and to us, his modern-day disciples, a very important spiritual lesson. And what is this spiritual lesson? This is it. It's possible to appear fruitful, but in reality, be fruitless. In other words, it's possible to appear as someone that you're really not. And the helpful, but at the same time kind of scary thing is that Jesus is very much aware of who you really are. He is aware of an individual that pretends to be someone or something that they are not. And Jesus is still very much in the business and he is very much committed to exposing you for who you truly are, not to condemn you. He doesn't want to do that, condemn you, but to provide freedom. Jesus is warning us of God's displeasure when we have the appearance of fruit, but not the fruit itself. David Guzik, who's an author, says this, God isn't pleased when his people are all leaves and no fruit. And so my question to you is, can you relate to this? Are you pretending, okay? Are you busying yourself and keeping a mask on and being someone that you're really not? And in especially in the church culture, right? There's this pressure and there's this tendency for us to like kind of keep up with the Joneses, Christian kind of what is expected of us. There really is. And what we like to do is continue to live and get involved in church and get involved in serving and do spiritual things to show everybody that we're someone that we're really not. When in reality, um, what we're pretending to be is not who we really are. What we're pretending to be, to be in public is not who we are in private. And so can you relate? Be honest with God and yourself God's opinion of you is way more important than um, others' opinion of you. So, it was the week of the Passover festival. Like many comic fans invade San Diego for Comic-Con... During the time of Jesus, Jews and non-Jews alike invaded Jerusalem from all over the ancient world for this Jewish spring festival which commemorates the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. 
and most of the people attending the Passover festival needed to buy sheep for their religious sacrifices, and some of them wanted to buy souvenirs and gifts for families when they returned home. And so the buying and selling of animals and memorabilia during the Passover was big business. It really was. And the place to purchase all of these things was the temple. Okay, the temple was the marketplace during Passover. Like all marketplaces, there was a lot going on. Okay, you can imagine hundreds and thousands of people have gathered in one place for this festival. They're all in the temple. They're, you know, they're, they're people that have set up booths and are selling sheep and are selling pigeons. And you can imagine back then the bartering and the, hey, um, how much are you going to give this to me? And there's a lot of noise and there's a lot going on and so much is happening. And as Jesus observes everything that's taking place in the temple, righteous anger begins to boil within his heart. And so, like a firefighter enters a room ablaze with fire and immediately begins to extinguish the flames, Jesus enters the temple and begins to extinguish the unholy and destructive practices that was taking place there. Look at verse 15 again. It's unbelievable. It says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Wow, meek and mild, lovely Jesus. Meek and mild, lovely Jesus. Growing up, the image I got of Jesus was this lovely man, right? He always somehow had blonde hair, blue eyes. He looked Swedish, right? He just looked Swedish. All the pictures and images and all the movies I watched, just like kind of strolling along like the hippies of Southern California, you know? <laughs> just, like, just like chilling, like that kind of vibe. But you read this and you get a totally different perspective of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a lamb. He is a lion, right? You guys have seen Narnia. There's that kind of two perspectives of Jesus. And here we are seeing the much needed, much necessary lion aspect of who Jesus is. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, but it was being used as a public market. It was being used to acquire wealth and material goods rather than to encounter and worship God. Imagine being there. Imagine seeing this incident unfold before your very eyes. You can imagine what it must have been like. One moment, the center for religious worship is a bustling marketplace. The next moment, it's in ruins. It's all come to a halt because of 
the righteous anger of a well-known Jewish rabbi who many believe is the Messiah. And you can imagine, so many people would have been in shock, like, what's going on? Who is this guy? Sheep would have been, like, running for the exit. They're like, I'm free! You know, kind of all <laughs> Sheeps don't talk. I watched Lion King, and so my brain... <laughs> Kind of like believing that animals can talk. That is so odd. Anyway, Jesus didn't let his actions do all the talking. He provides an explanation of why he reacted the way he does. Look at verse 17. He says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The whole purpose of the temple was supposed to be a safe place to encounter the living God through prayer for all people groups, but it had drifted away from its original intent and it's now a den of robbers. And Jesus wants to restore it back to its original intent. And he wants to restore us the living temple of God's presence, back to the heart of worship, back to an unwavering dependence on God through prayer. Jesus' actions in the temple may be viewed by some as being irresponsible or outlandish or thuggish, right? But we all will agree that there are times when aggression is needed for a good cause. What is that thing in your life that has subtly enticed you away from encountering and experiencing God to the fullest? If Jesus was to invade your life if Jesus was to enter into your life and search your heart, what would he need to drive out so that you can be free to engage in a deep and abiding relationship with God, the creator of the universe? The next morning, as they traveled from Bethany back to Jerusalem, verse 20 lets us know that they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter, Jesus' most outspoken disciple, <laughs> remembered that it was the same fig tree from the morning before and said to Jesus, verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus' response is so interesting. Why? Because he doesn't even refer to the fig tree, okay? Instead, he uses the incident as an opportunity to teach his disciples more about prayer look at verse 22 he says and Jesus it says and Jesus answered them have faith in God truly I say to you whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass it will be done for him just so we're on the same page, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is not saying that you and I will be able to actually uproot real life mountains if we really, really, really believe we can. Just so you know, okay? 
The point he's trying to make is that by faith, his followers can do what seems impossible. Jesus continues. Look at verse 24. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And then he ends his teaching about faith and prayer with this important reminder. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, Forgive them, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. A lack of faith is not the only obstacle to effectiveness in prayer, but refusing to forgive or holding on to bitterness can also be a hindrance to effective prayer. When we harbor bitterness and resentment towards someone else, what's happening is that we are inflicting punishment on ourselves. Jeremy Treat says this. It's a pastor friend of mine. He says, bitterness is a prison that's locked from the inside. And forgiveness is the way out. You may be here this morning and like me, when I was studying this and reflecting on this, you may be here this morning and you're saying, hey, uh, Obed, like, you don't understand what I've been through, okay? You don't understand what this person, so-and-so, has done and said to me. They have been a horrible human being to me. And I cannot forgive. It's extremely hard to forgive. I, as a human who has been on the receiving end of something negative from someone, I understand what has been done to me, my struggle, forget all of that may be different to yours, but I understand because I too have been deeply wounded and hurt by someone. If you're struggling to forgive someone who has deeply wounded and hurt you, then let me recommend to you the foundational thing that helped me begin and continue on the path of forgiveness. For your information, FYI, it's not a self-help book that helped me. It's not a treatment like therapy or counseling. 
It's not the discipline of yoga or anything. Those things are really helpful. Personally, what's helped me most to begin to forgive and remain on the path of forgiveness is to recognize that I too have been forgiven. And what will empower you and I and the person sitting next to you to forgive the person that has deeply hurt you and remain on the path of forgiveness is to recognize that you too have been forgiven. Not by someone else who is like you, but by Jesus, your king, who died for you. Because of the perfect life of Jesus, because of his severe and horrific suffering and death, because of his extraordinary victory over death, we have been provided with what we don't deserve, and that is forgiveness of sins. When you come to terms with your never-ending rebellion against God and his bottomless, unlimited grace to forgive you, that is when you will find the needed strength to forgive. Jesus may have cursed the fruitless fig tree, but on the cross, he was cursed so that you may live a fruitful life. And part of living a fruitful life can't be achieved by yourself. You need someone else, something outside of yourself to empower you to live a life of true fruitfulness. J.C. Ryle says this, God's free forgiveness of sins is our highest privilege in this world. God's free forgiveness will be our only tide to eternal life in the world to come. Then let us be forgiven during the few years that we are here upon earth. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. There's so much for us to think about and reflect. And so I pray now that you would highlight one thing that we need to grow to love you so that we may continue to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, this is what's going to happen. We're going to enter into a time where we call reflection time. All right. And this time is for you to just sit and reflect on everything you've heard. And to help you do that, here are four questions. Okay. What has God been saying to you? What has God been saying to you? We covered a lot today. Yeah, we really did cover that. We covered a lot. <laughs> right? But what stood out to you? Okay? What stood out to you? 
and the next question is because of what Jesus has provided for you through his life, death and resurrection, what do you need to do about it? What do you need to do about it? The other question is when will you do it? We're getting really practical. And the other question is, the last question is who will help you? What I mean by that is we cannot achieve the life God has called us to live on our own. We need for us to achieve that life through community. And so who will help you do it? Enjoy reflecting. And when that time is done, um, Dan will um, let you guys know to sand and sing. Thank you.